following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. But brothers and sisters, and to our children here in this congregation as well, since there are so many of you, many of this will be, much of this will be fresh on your mind, as it is on mine in a certain way as well. All children at one point or another get in trouble with your mama. That happened to me more times than I could probably count on both of my hands, actually. Miss Tracy, of course, would bring her wrath down very swiftly, too, if you know my mother, like some of y'all do. Now, one such incident was an example of half-obedience to a command that was met with quick discipline. Once my mother told me when I was fairly young, go brush, go brush your teeth upstairs and then go right on to bed. That was a very clear command from my mother. That was a command. Instead, I decided I'm going to brush my teeth and then I'm going to go downstairs and I'll sweep the kitchen. Maybe that'll make her happy then. Maybe I can stay up a little bit longer and not go to bed just yet if I go downstairs and decide to sweep the kitchen. Mom's always complaining about the floor is dirty in here. Y'all are tracking in mud from outside and such. And often, I knew that she complained about that. Now, Mama disciplined me accordingly. Very quickly, too, I might add. I still get pictures of that in my mind. And why is that? Why did she discipline me accordingly? Wasn't I doing something good? Weren't my motives right? Wasn't I listening to her as she complained about how much I'd tracked mud in in my boots from outside in the fields and in the pastures? But I was disciplined still. It was wrong because it was not obedience, but selfish sacrifice. It was not obeying her command. Now, it would have pleased her if I followed her command and listened instead of doing something rebellious, though noble on the outside, perhaps. My heart was not right within me. So too, we see in this text that Saul rebels against God's command by half-obeying, thus bringing dire consequences for him and for his household. Because of this sin that he commits, he will lose the kingdom. You're going to see that later on in the book of 1 Samuel as the kingdom is ripped from Saul and it's going to be given to another. That happens in the very next chapter as Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and anoints the next king, King David from whom the Messiah will come. Because of Saul's sin, he loses the kingdom. Another will arise, and his sins must be dealt with by another. So we're going to see from this text, because of Saul's rejection of God's word, he is rejected as king, and his sin must be dealt with. His sin must be dealt with. We're going to see that in three points as well. From verses 1 through 9, we're going to see the rejected command of God. In verses 10 through 23, we're going to see the rebuke of Saul by God. And in verses 24 through 35, we're going to see the result of sin against God. We're going to see those three points arise from this text. So look now with me in the text at verse 1 here. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, this was God's man on the throne. David recognizes that later on when he sees him in the cave and he has an opportunity to stab him with a dagger and to put an end to all the civil war that had been going on between the faction of David and between the faction of Saul. He refuses to do that because he realizes that this man is God's anointed. He has been poured anointing oil upon him by a prophet and has been 
appointed as king over Israel. Samuel is saying, this has happened to you. You know that this has happened to you. The Lord sent me, Samuel, to anoint you king over Israel. Now on account of that, you must listen because this command is for God's servant. Saul must obey this because it is the word of the Lord. Obedience is very clear as a theme here. It's a test in a certain way as well. You see that in the previous few chapters as Saul began on a higher note and he continues to digress and to digress downward and downward. And Jonathan has to pick up a lot of his issues and problems as well. But we see that for the moment, God has put Saul in power over Israel. So this command is for him and Samuel is reminding him of that. I am the one who anoints you. God was the one who called you. Now therefore listen very carefully to the words of the Lord. Obedience is key here. Second, you see that the command is for the ban on Amalek. Look at me. Look at verses 2 through 3 right there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now that had happened all the way back in Exodus chapter 17. Most of y'all will be familiar with the, the narrative of the Torah and, or of the Pentateuch. Most of y'all are going to be familiar with that. The people had been brought out of Egypt. The Lord, just a few chapters before Exodus 17 and Exodus 14, had parted the Red Sea and the people had gone over on dry land. And Amalek had the gall to attack God's people. Amalek attacked him and kicked a man while he was down. Now God remembers this travesty against His people. There will be some application from that later on that pertains to the church of our day in so many ways. We can think of many of those ourselves. So this command is for the ban on Amalek. God remembers what Amalek has done to His people. He does not forget. He is not a man who has a cloudy memory and forgets certain things. Now go, in verse 3, and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now all of these things are commanded. They are under the ban. You see this in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 6 with the sin of Achan. Other areas too. This was not an uncommon concept to the Israelite mind of the time. They understood what that meant. They understood that we're to go and totally wipe out, God calls them later the sinners, they're to go and be the judgment rod of God upon the Amalekites. So they are placed under the ban, as it were. The word there literally means to ban, or to put them under the ban. It can be translated as that, or to devote to destruction. The command is very clear. Go in, destroy everything, don't let a soul tell the tale and kill all their livestock as well. Now this command was halfway completed. Look at verses 4 through 9. Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. In other words, that's a very, very large army. Some of the battles of ancient Rome, my wife and I have been really into Roman history for reasons uh, lately. Uh, we're both big nerds like that. We both like history, as you children should as well. You should enjoy history as well. But most of those battles, there wasn't even close to that many people in most of those battles of ancient Rome. This is a massive force that Saul has assembled here. And then what does he do in verse 5? Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. 
Why is that? For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now this is going also back to the time of the Pentateuch and in the Torah. What had happened was this was the clan of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, a clan of Midian actually. And what had happened was Jethro had shown great kindness to the people of Israel. He set up their system of elders. Their 70 elders had been assembled by Jethro. He had exhorted them and persuaded them to do this. So Saul is going to spare the Kenites, a right thing to do. God remembers mercy upon tens of thousands to the umpteenth generation for those who love him. And he remembers what Jethro had done at another time, kindness to his people. Truly the word of the Lord is true with that, isn't it? That he who does something good to the least of these will receive blessing. And what does Saul do? Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. In other words, if you picture a map in your head, that's going from Mesopotamia or present-day Iraq and all the way to the border of Egypt. What that's saying is Saul went all across that land, hundreds and hundreds of miles killing all the Amalekites that he could along the way. But what does he do? There's a problem here in verse 8. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Notice, this is going to play very big into the narrative later on as well. Saul does a half-obedience measure. This is a half-measure, not a full measure. And he wants to say that his motives are good later on as well. But we're going to learn that that's not the case. So Saul extinguishes the Amalekites, save for Agag and the best that they have to offer, not strict obedience to the Lord's command. Now what does this mean for us today? This shows us the nature of strict obedience to God's command. May it never be said that the one who is following after the Lord in spirit and in truth and loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength is a legalist. That is not the case. One who follows, the obe- follows in obedience to God and follows Him to a T. That is not legalism. Trying to justify yourself in the sight of God is legalism. This is not legalistic what God is commanding. Remember Christ, He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Remember the preface to the Ten Commandments as well. It is because God has done these certain things for you. He has ransomed these people out of Egypt. He commands obedience thereby. Your Christian life, for instance, oh dear Christian, it is not one that you can simply say, I'm born again, I've got my get out of hell free card. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention. I walked down the aisle, said the prayer after the preacher, was baptized pretty soon thereafter, and then you're good. There's no obedience required. No, brothers and sisters, there is strict obedience that is required. We're not allowed to simply go by the way after the Lord has caused us to be born again and then to simply do whatever we please that is good in our own sight. This also shows the danger of half obedience to God's commands because every one of us is susceptible to that. I'm susceptible to that. You're susceptible to that. We want to do just the bare minimum. That's how rebellious humanity is. We want to do what the least we can and get the most amount of profit. I was in business before this, and I can tell you that that's certainly true. Whatever least amount of work and effort I can put into something, I want the most amount of profit from it. That's the danger of half-obedience. So we must ask ourselves, am I offering full obedience to the Lord or am I simply seeking to check a box? That's what Saul is doing here, is it not? 
He's simply checking that box and saying, I'm being faithful and I'm doing stuff to the best of my ability. I'm following the command. But it's a half obedience which God spews out of his mouth, does he not? He reminds us of that in Revelation 3 as well. That the lukewarm he shall spit out of his mouth. We also see that the command of the Lord, though, is not always easy to hear or to follow in our fallen natures. Now, there are some big theological challenges in this text, are there not? The idea of the ban to the 21st century mind is totally unfathomable. Most of the time, this would be met within the culture. It would be met with, well, my Jesus would never command such a thing. My God would never command such a thing. My God would never command those people to be put to death, even to the infants of them. But remember, this sinfulness in Amalek has gone back for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they haven't had any repentance in the slightest. It goes back all the way to Moses' era, which was hundreds of years, 400 plus perhaps even, from this time period. This shows the divine command to exterminate the seed of Amalek. All the way down to the very littlest one. It shows original sin is a very real thing. It shows that all are sinners and are fallen before the Lord of hosts. It shows that everyone, even to the least of us, is guilty in the sight of God. It's a positive command that is relative to this time and place. That doesn't mean that you need to go and kill an Amalekite if someone were to claim it now. That's not what this text is saying. But for this point in time, the Amalekites were to be exterminated all the way to the very lowest of them. But it also shows us one thing about our Lord and Savior, does it not? Notice how long that this takes from the command in Exodus chapter 17 to never forget what the Amalekites do to you. It shows the long-suffering and just nature of God. He has allowed the Amalekites time to repent, to turn from their wicked ways. He did the same for the Canaanites before the book of Joshua began. He allowed them hundreds of years to repent, ample time to repent. But they would not and could not repent Therefore, they are under the ban. Saul fails in this command. I also want us to think just for a moment. Think about the care that God has for His people. The Lord is not a man that He forgets. The Lord is not quick to wrath, of course. And may we be thankful for that. But He is slow to anger. But He is a just God. He does not forget a wrong done to His people. In the modern day, he shall not forget what the North Korean dictator has done to the people of God in North Korea. The Lord does not forget these things. Justice will be visited upon the sinner. We know not when, we know not where necessarily, but we do know how because it will be done by the Lord Himself. So if we face persecution in the church, if we face it more in the West even, if we face more and more reviling as time goes on, and if they even decide to close the doors to our congregations and churches, remember this, the Lord does not forget. He does not forget what the sinner does to His people. He did not forget it here, and He does not forget it for us either, or later on. The Lord does not forget these things, and we must retain obedience to Him in all that we do. Now, by picture of this too, with Saul's obedience in particular too, think of the nature of following a command in the military. Some of you might have been in the military before. I was raised around a lot of military folks as well on the Gulf Coast. If you did not follow to the strictest degree a command from your superior officer, havoc could be wreaked upon an army. That happened a lot of times. And if you disobeyed an officer, you often had retribution visited upon you. 
A good army officer back in the day, especially, of course, hundreds of years ago, would not allow a subordinate officer or a private or anyone else to simply say, I'm not doing that, or I'm only going to do it a little bit. If they did that, then havoc would be wreaked upon a military because discipline is crucial for a functioning army. The Romans, once again, would whip their troops if there was even the littlest hint of insubordination and the legions conquered most of the world. One of my personal heroes, the Duke Wellington, when he was fighting Napoleon as well, did the same thing. His troops were very disciplined and he beat one of the greatest military minds in all of history because of it. General Jackson of the Confederate Army disciplined and executed deserters from his army to make sure that that didn't happen anymore. Saul here has a breakdown in discipline. He has a half-obedience that is going to get him nowhere. And since Saul did not follow the command fully, there were serious problems that were going to arise. The Amalekites were going to remain a thorn in the side of Israel later on. Even in the book of Esther, there's an Amalekite there who schemes to execute the people of Israel. Because of Saul's foolhardiness and because of his disobedience to the Lord, they're going to continue being a thorn in the flesh. There are ramifications arising from disobedience. From the greatest of us to the least of us. And we must remember to be obedient to the Lord. Half measures will not cut it in the army of the Lord. If we do so, we can expect swift discipline or retribution. Secondly, we see the rebuke of Saul by God in verses 10 through 23. We see the word of the Lord coming to Samuel, and then the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now this is a bit of a a little interesting text right here as well. The reason for that is we understand that God does not regret and God does not repent. Samuel himself says that later on. But remember also in such areas as the book of Proverbs where it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly. And then a few verses later it says, Answer a fool according to his folly. It's wisdom literature. He's trying to get you to think a little bit as well. So it's an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism. That's just a big, big word that simply means that we're attributing certain characteristics to God. Or he's talking to you as I would talk to my son who's no longer in the back row. I don't talk to him in the same way that I talk to my pastor or to one of my youth children. I talk to him in babbling or in little bitty phrases that he might could understand and I could get a smile out of. But the Lord here, he regrets that he has made Saul king. The same is said also in Genesis chapter 6 and in other places as well. The Lord shows us that there is problems going on and he has doesn't have these feelings necessarily, the same that we do, but he is trying to communicate something to us. He's showing that something has gone wrong. We'll see that again in verse 29. He regrets that he has anointed Saul, and he regrets the path that Saul has committed to. Not only this, but Samuel himself was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. So Saul is not interested in the honor of the Lord here. He's interested in himself more than anything. When he retains all of the best cattle and the best sheep and Agag himself, his intent was probably, I'm going to parade this man through through the streets and the cities of Judah and of Israel as well. He's going to parade him around and show, look what I, Saul, have done. Look at all the riches that I have heaped up for the people. Look at what I have done. He builds himself a monument and Samuel is sick about it. 
Samuel came to Saul in verse 13. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Isn't this a picture of the sinful human mind? Even though we do these things, we, we know that we have done wrong. We know that we have not followed the command of God. And yet we have the audacity to say, I have done it. I have performed that commandment perfectly. And he's going to be rebuked as well for this. Samuel answers him sarcastically in verse 14, and you've got to love it when this happens in the Scripture as well. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul knows what he's done. Samuel knows what he's done. And most importantly, the Lord knows what he's done. Look at the answer that Saul gives in the rest of these verses. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we have devoted to destruction. Saul is simply saying, Oh no, I wanted to sacrifice all of these creatures. You've read the Scriptures, of course. You read all the sacrifices that we're supposed to be bringing to the tabernacle. The people are simply saving all of those that are good for tabernacle worship. They're saving all of these things. They're going to sacrifice them. And they're going to honor you as well, Samuel, because this is the Lord your God that we're attempting to worship here. We wanted to bring the best of the fruits before Him. This is not done out of a heart of obedience. It's done from a heart of wickedness. Samuel then speaks to him. Look down at verse 17. And he rebukes Saul very firmly here. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul, when he was anointed king, said, Oh, I'm far too small. I'm from the smallest of the tribes of Israel. I'm from Benjamin. The king is supposed to be from Judah, of course. And he actually would hide when they sought to make him king. Samuel is rebuking him here. Weren't you once a humble man who said that he didn't even want the job? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That word in my translation, pounce, right there. It's actually a picture of a vulture swooping in for the kill. It's as if you were driving out on the road this evening and you saw a flock of vultures coming down on an animal's carcass on the side. It's almost as if Saul is jumping onto the booty and the spoil just like that. He's coming down as if it was a dead animal on the side of the road and is scooping up things for himself in the most greedy fashion possible. That's the kind of man that he is. Look what the sinner tries to do in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, the sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's blame-shifting here, isn't he? Oh, I didn't do it. The people are doing it. The people are the ones who want to do this. Samuel's no fool, of course. He knows that Saul is king in Israel. And the people have already obeyed his commands. It's Saul who's behind this, not the people who are rebelling. And then Samuel gives one of the most famous verses from 1 Samuel, in verses 22 onwards. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
The Lord is pleased in obedience. Christ our Lord has said before, if you love me, you keep my commandments. He who loves me keeps my commandments. Obedience is what the Lord calls for from His covenant people. It is better to obey than to bring sacrifices. If you, just like I did when I was a child, was saying, well, I'm sacrificing by sweeping the floor of the kitchen. It's better to obey than to offer sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. What he's saying here is that rebellion is just as bad as trying to contact somebody from the dead, which was punishable by death in ancient Israel. Saul's going to commit that sin as well later on, which just shows you how much of a depraved heart he has in his ill-conceived obedience. Samuel gives the final verdict. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In the original text, it's the same verb that's used for rejection. He's using wordplay. Just like you have rejected the Lord, he's rejecting you now. And is going to rip the kingdom away from you. Now, we see several things from this text as well. We see Samuel's reaction to the sin that has been committed. We see the grieving of a true believer in the earlier parts of the text. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night in verse 11. We see that a true believer, when he is confronted with sin, when he sees sin outside of himself or in himself even, he goes to his prayer closet or he cries out unto the Lord, where is the justice which you have promised? Where is the grace and mercy? Remember what Christ did while weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who have rejected the prophets. Christ cries out because of the sinfulness that He sees around Him. That should bring us too as believers to weep and to cry out over sin. We don't rejoice in sin. We cry out to the Lord over it. We see the poor leadership of Saul at this point. A good leader knows to take blame when something goes wrong and to give glory to God when things go right rather than heaping praise upon himself. Saul reverses that. He praises himself and he shifts the blame to others. He wants the glory and he doesn't want the blame. The people made me do it, but he set up a monument. And he's going to parade Agag around for his own glory. But brothers and sisters, how often do we do this? How often do we get these things twisted around as well? How often are we quick to take the glory for something that we do away from the Lord our God, away from Christ Jesus, and then we shift the blame upon something else? Little children, I've been in your shoes before too. I was very quick to say, my brother did it. My sister did it. I didn't do it. They made me do it. Or the friend across the street. Or someone else is guilty of it. But if there's something good that happened, I want to be first in line to get what's coming to me. How often do we follow Saul's example from this text? We rarely do take responsibility for our mistakes. How rarely do we say, Lord, it is I, the sinner. Thou art the man, as was uttered to David. Oh, but brothers and sisters, after that, though, we see the delight of the Lord in obedience to His commands. The Lord loves the cheerful giver. The obedient child, the faithful servant. He despises rebellion, the prideful, or the covetous. It's as bad as a sorcerer or the occultist who practices witchcraft and divination in his basement. Disobedience is hated by the Lord. Saul is rejected as king because of this disobedience. And the crown's going to be given to another. 
You know, in a major corporation, a good CEO is marked by a few things. One of those things is that he's humble. He seeks to serve the best that he can for the good of the company. He always shows appreciation. He gives credence to others when something good goes their way. And he's often quick to take the blame when something goes wrong. That's what a good leader does. That's what a good king does as well. He obeys the laws, the board of directors, so far as they're true. And he seeks to act correctly in all of his dealings. A good CEO is obedient to his board of directors, to the laws that are above him. But a bad CEO is one that cuts corners, or he entices others to do so, or he shifts blame to numerous factors, and he greedily hogs the credit when things go right for his own image's sake. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. It is better to say, I'm in the wrong. It's better to say, give the glory to another than to take it all for yourself. Saul learns that the hard way. Thirdly and finally, we're going to see the result of sin against God in verses 24 through 35. First and foremost, you're going to see the faulty repentance of Saul as well in the next few verses. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. One thing that is very clear here is that there is no rebellion, no mention of his sinfulness to the Lord. David gets that right in Psalm 51 as well, doesn't he? Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. We see also the result of Saul's sin in later verses too. The kingdom is torn. Just as he tears the skirt of Samuel's robe, the Samuel answers him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. He's not going to regret this action that he's now undertaking. God isn't changing his mind here. He's changing the course of action. He's now going to take the kingdom from Saul and give it to his man, David, quite soon. Continues. Then Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel acquiesces in verse 31. He turns back after Saul, and Saul bows before the Lord. We see that Saul's really not all that interested in repentance. He's not, right, he's not thinking about making things right with God. He's not thinking about making things right really with anyone but himself. He's seeking to cover his own tail in and we see finally as well, we see the execution of Saul's sin by Samuel in verses 32 through 33. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Notice that it should have been Saul who was dealing with this if he were truly penitent. But instead, it's going to be Samuel that has to cover his bases. Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel's the one who deals with the sin here, not Saul. We see that he is going to execute the plan of God, and he's going to exterminate the rest of it. Samuel's going to step up. Saul is going to step back. Then, finally, we see the example of true grief for sin in Samuel, and then we're going to see the opposite in Saul. Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. See what happens when a true man of God or woman of God sees sin from someone else or in their midst. See what happens. Samuel 
grieves over Saul. He cares for Saul. The Lord does too, of course, but the Lord regrets that He has made Saul king over Israel. We see from this text the danger of a half-hearted repentance. Repentance is key to a right relationship with God. It's key in human relationships. If I were to continue going and sinning against my wife, or debasing her, or, or insulting her at every key and turn without true repentance, our relationship is going to be damaged. The same is true between us and God. Saul doesn't understand repentance, nor does he seek restoration. Now, why do we repent of our sins? Is it because we hate sin and we love God? Or is it because we've been confronted and we feel bad? Or because the results are less than ideal for our pocketbooks? Or because we're going to get punished or receive the rod? And we see that these ramifications of sin, they're spiritual and they can be temporal. For Saul here, this is a temporal penalty. He loses his kingdom. And he's going to die for it later on as well. Saul is upset that he suffers the loss of the kingdom, but he's not upset that he's committed a sin against God. He's not upset about his sins. He's upset about the ramifications of them. So we can compare and contrast this, brothers and sisters, with two kings, Saul and David. Now David commits a pretty nasty sin later on, does he not? If we know our Bibles, he sees Bathsheba, commits the sin with Bathsheba, and then has her husband executed takes her as his wife, and receives punishment for it later on. But notice his repentant, his repentant prayer later on in Psalm 51. He's truly penitent over these things, isn't he? This is a true believer. Notice Saul's feigned repentance here. It's a false repentance. It shows neither care for man, nor care for the affront to God. It shows only care for himself. It's pivotal to have a right attitude towards sin, is it not? David had this in him. The true disciples of God have this grieving in them. We must have a right attitude towards sin. If we do not, then it carries such great spiritual death with it. You know, you're going to see that a lot nowadays as well, that people celebrate sin. People uplift sin. People say, well, it's not so bad of an idea. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone does wrong sometimes. God is a God of love. He can't judge us. He's already commanded us not to judge, nor can He judge. That's what the culture around you is going to say. But we know better, brothers and sisters. We know the penalty that sin carries with it. It carries temporal issues. It carries eternal issues even more. And it's what merits us hell. The sin that we inherit from our first parents. The sins that we commit daily. All of these things merit hell. God hates this, and true believers hate this sin. Do you yourself grieve over it? Do you approach sin more like Saul, and it's, I don't like the results of it, but I'm not going to do anything about it? Or are we like Samuel who grieve over it? And are we like David who repent from it? Later on, the greatest king, King Jesus, is going to be shown grieving over his people's sins. So much so that he takes takes sin so seriously, more than any other man, that he's willing to die for it, to cleanse us from it, to ransom us from the wrath of God. That's the correct attitude towards sin. That's the correct attitude towards obedience. That's the correct attitude, period. It's what Christ Jesus has shown forth. Are we following after that example, or are we acting more and more like Saul? 
showing a flippancy towards sin, showing a flippancy towards obedience, and only caring when it bites us? Or do we care like Christ does about our eternal states and about glory given to God? Do you yourselves care about that? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.